Here's a question for you. What do a loft and a profit have in common? Well, the answer to that is pretty much nothing. Unless, of course, you're talking to my guest today on the program. Then they have quite a bit in common indeed. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Dressed up in future fashion Spending time outside the station Superpowers in your fingertips Guarding special information You came from Kenya via Saturn Never asking for permission Standing there every single day Quiet about your mission Your legacy is neon bones Breast cuttings and black and white photos And no one even knew your name You were just spending time on earth again That is the music of my guest today on the program Pete Astor. Let me tell you a little bit about Pete Astor. The British-born singer-songwriter Pete Astor has a lot in common with lofts and profits because he's been both. Now, that might sound weird, but it's about to sound not so weird because I'm going to explain it to you. Astor was the frontman for the band The Loft, and when that outfit split up, he formed The Weather Prophets. Man, I love the Weather Prophets all through high school. They were one of my favorite bands. They put out a handful of albums, including the fabulous Diesel River and the miraculous Judges, Juries, and Horsemen. Astor kept the dream alive after the Prophets split up, emerging with projects like The Wisdom of Harry and Ellis Island Sound. Currently, Pete Astor is a senior lecturer at the University of Westminster, where he teaches, researches, and writes about music. And in 2014, his book on Richard Hell and the Voidoids' Blank Generation was released as part of Bloomsbury's 33 and a Third series. And guess what? Throughout the years, Pete Astor hasn't stopped putting out solo albums which are practically peerless. From Summerine to One for the Ghost to his outstanding new one, Time on Earth, Pete Astor remains one of the most compelling figures in modern music. He's quietly amassed a discography that's redolent with thought, lyrical dexterity, observational smarts, and hooks galore. The fact is, Pete Astor is one of the most listenable artists out there. Of his new album, Time on Earth, Dave Cantrell of Stereo Embers magazine wrote, It's punchy in the melodic, reassuring way we've come to expect. Somehow poignant and unsentimental in equal measure, it's a worthy addition to an already bursting canon of sublime pop jewels. And this conversation, well, I think it also falls under the sublime jewels category. So here you go. Me and Pete Astor having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. stuff like each year of the kind of or doing a little ritual at new year which is often quite good 
but actually I took a photograph of what I buried last year and it was basically exactly the same, you know, like uh, it's, it's about belief and faith and uh, and fortitude and uh, kindness, generosity, you know, just trying to be a better person, basically, which uh, one consistently fails at. <laughs> Try and be better. No, so it's, yeah, so do I have goals? God, yeah, I do. I have goals, but not goals in the sense of, you know, wanting to be a CEO of a, of a new startup company, but, you know, I kind of, I have goals in the sense of, uh, yeah, I'm still, I'm still really ambitious, kind of aesthetically. I still find myself really wanting to just do the best work I can, um, you know, and sort of uh, grow old disgracefully. Well, I was on this subject and about you. I was talking to Dave Cantrell, who's our senior editor over at the magazine, and he and I were both commenting that your work and there's plenty of examples uh where this is the opposite but your work just gets better and better which is not oh. an easy thing to do because he and i are both massive fans of everything you've done but you just keep raising the bar which i think is really all you can ask for as an artist but i and, and there's no way of answering like how do you do that uh, but you you have never um you've never you've never ever in, in my opinion moved anywhere but forward um i mean if you can answer that how you do that we can get a book written and make millions of dollars <laughs> um i don't know being stupid enough to try <laughs> that's the answer <laughs> no i mean it, uh, yeah i don't know it's kind of I don't know I just it's just it's really nice to do I mean it's kind of you know I I think I might have said to Dave at some point sort of India I kind of had a bit of a, a kind of a light bulb moment at a certain point there was a time maybe around 2000 and I don't know 2008 or 9 or 10 where I just kind of I got into my head I got a very good friend who um he'd had a really terrible time around this time um and he was sort of saying, and his life had completely fallen apart. And he was saying, for me, music's always this lovely, warm, safe space that I can go to, um, you know, no matter how everything else is going wrong. And I mean, actually, he does a lot. He's very, he's, he's great to see he's doing so much music and so much fascinating, interesting music. Um, and at that time, I remember thinking, no, actually, music feels like a something really difficult and, and, uh, a dangerous place to be in a place that's got me into so much trouble and um, you know just I just kind of it was a kind of a life moment I suppose maybe it's to do with being a parent on some level you're like you know maybe I I you know I'm better off not being a musician I don't know lots and lots of big big thoughts like that and I think on the on the album Songbox I was always going to call it Gold Watch was always going to be the title which uh, I don't know if that's a thing does that exist in America the Gold Watch you mean when you retire, yeah. they give you the gold watch? Yeah, I mean, in yeah. my mind, that was like, I'm done, you know? And then the last song on the record is very much like, I'm done now, do you know what I mean? I'm I mistress of song, you know, but I believed in you, you know? And you, yeah, I mean, and, and, and then after that, as you do, maybe you have to get to the point of, I mean, I think that's often true of creative work. You get to the point of thinking, that's it, I'm done. I'm fuckless, I'm giving up, is the exact point where you go. And then I, and then actually, and again, I think I said this maybe in an interview with Dave, it was, I actually read in my teaching. You, I'd always reference this this very famous book by Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi called Flow, 
And it's a concept that's constantly bandied around and I referenced it and I knew about it. But I never actually read the book, you know. <laughs> and then I actually read the book, you know, which is a big fucker, do you know what I mean? And I, I read it and it was it was really revelatory, you know, in a way that, you know, the ideas are kind of relatively not banal, but I mean, they, you know, they, they just kind of, they go. And it's that thing of achieving flow where you kind of forget yourself and it becomes valuable in a sort of a way of like the the, the search. I mean, obviously the, the bumper sticker for the book is, you know, the 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 the, the, the magic guide to happiness. Do you know what I mean? You're like, oh, well, I'll buy that then. Yeah. Um, but what's good about Csikszentmihalyi is, you know, he, he I think he just died, but he's a, he, you know, he was a, he was a emeritus professor. So, I mean, it was, the, 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 it's a very interesting book about creativity and flow, but it's also been backed up by 40 years of research, proper, reference research so I mean it wasn't just like this is my idea my hunch um so that was the thing that really made me think you know I'm going to kind of commit to music so kind of after Songbox really I kind of I mean Songbox was committed because it was in that slightly kind of valid valedictory kind of like you know it's like uh, you know no, it's like what's this? You know, Ziggy at the Hammersmith Odeon. That's it. I retire. You know, six months later, I'm not, I'm not exactly. You know, but um, and then after that, I kind of realised that this, you know, I might as well commit to it. I kind of like this is what I might as well. But you might as well believe in yourself. In fact, I, it's it's actually up on the wall here. It's like, you know, it's right up above my note, notice board. You might as well believe in what you do. Mm. <laughs> Long answer, but I mean, it's yes. Yeah, so 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 maybe. I don't know. I just so I can try and do the best work I can, but I, I'm very committed to it. I'm very committed to making it as good as I can and as generous as I can, and and learning stuff. And I think I've got. I don't know if I've got my music's got better, but I've got much better at collaborating. I've got much better at listening to people. I have got better at singing, which is amazing to me, and I've got better at playing the guitar. And I've, I've I've always been pretty good at programming, but I've maybe got better. I've definitely got better at singing, which has been an, a huge pleasure, which just has come entirely from playing lots of shows and doing lots of singing. As simple as that, you know. Yeah, like like getting the reps in just by just by simply doing the work, the work gets yeah, better. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's yeah. It's a very simple equation, but it's true, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And I I've been doing a lot of music work, and it's a real pleasure. Yes. In fact, actually, we're doing a single. We're doing one loft gig. And it's been great doing the stuff. I mean, I haven't frankly rehearsed any of the songs yet, but it, because I'm sort of, I'm playing so much, it feels really easy to do it. Whereas I remember when we we played some shows in the in the mid 2000s, the mid, what you call it, 2005, one show or a couple of shows, I was really, I was struggling in my, I was kind of going from muscle memory, but it didn't come easily to do that stuff. I mean, I did it because I knew it and I, I, I wrote it. So I guess, you know, I must be able to win when somebody... Anyway, you know, it worked. But so I feel much more inhabited. I inhabit music far more in a way. You know, it comes much easier to me. So when you think about like for like Songbox in the timeline of your work, that seems like a like it's almost like before Songbox and after Songbox, mm -hmm. there's a shift into a different gear. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly true. I think that's exactly true. I think I kind of, but it's also a gear that comes from, I don't know. I mean, I'm lucky enough to have done music for an incredibly long time but you know half a lifetime most of a lifetime well I'm you know I'm yeah I'm 62 now so I mean I've kind of been around for a long time um 
and I've been making records since 1984. I can't really do the maths, but you know, and then I was I'm releasing, making music since about 19, whatever. So, so I've seen it go through different stages and different things happening and different impacts and different different resonances um, <clears throat> of what I've done. I mean, sometimes what I've done is connected with lots of people. Sometimes it hasn't connected with lots of people. You know, that so that's part of that's you can't hope for, you can hope for that but you can't make it do that it just does it you just do what you do and hope to connect with people um so yeah i think it's definitely there was definitely a stage where i suppose i felt yeah i felt after song i thought i'm a lifer that's it i felt like a lifer i'm a lifer i can't remember who said that but i used that i thought that phrase made sense i thought yeah i'm a lifer now so you kind of realize like at that point all right look i'm not going to go sell real estate this is what I'm going to be doing. This, I'm no, in. definitely not. No, exactly. And also, I'm, you know, I'm this. This is what I do. And also, I'm kind of not done yet as well. I mean, I, I feel like I've got. You know, I still, I still want to write. I can't. I mean, even through the time I was trying not to write songs, it was. I felt this is when I was this discussion with my friend. You know, I was going. It's like a fucking illness. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's like I can't stop doing this. I want to stop doing it. I want to sort of. It felt I was. It, I sort of characterized it as something was pathological you know so I mean obviously I felt bad about the fact I couldn't stop writing songs even though I didn't really want to they would still appear um yeah so I, I think it was just like this is what I do this is what I am for want of a better word you know and, and also I had the kind of you know yeah I had I had the, I also had the gift of um but this is a bit of a made up theory that I made up um but I always think that when you get to 50, um, mathematically, it's it's nigh on absolutely impossible that you will be on the planet for as long as you've been on the planet in the future. In the future, you will not be as long. So when, when you're 40, you can, you know, you still know you, you imagine you're going to be 80 or whatever, whatever. Whereas when you're 50, you definitely aren't going to get to 100. And that makes every year after the age of 50 incredibly valuable and clear because you're like, I'm not fucking around here. Do you know what I mean? This is, this is, you know, I'm on the downward slope. I mean, that amazing line by Philip Larkin, you know, what, 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 Philip Larkin, what, what, what for us is a mountain for them is rising ground. I mean, it's like, it's just typical miserable fuck over. It's like, it's like, it, I, I get it. Do you know what I mean? And I don't know if it's quite rising ground. Well, it is rising ground for me. Yeah, it's kind of, I can see it, you know, and also, you know, a lot of, a lot of contemporaries are, are, are falling, you know, and are passing. And that's really uh, they're going to other places, you know. So that's 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 a big one as well. That's the I mean, that's life doing that to you, and indeed death doing that to you, you know. I mean, every year is important. I would almost say every day, uh, every hour Absolutely. is feels yeah. like it's like you know much more precious because I think when you're younger, I'm in my fifties now too, and it's like and I when you're younger, you feel that time there's a kind of infinite. Fee I mean, intellectually, you know, it's not, but it feels infinite. And yeah. it feels like all the work you plan to do, there's plenty of time to do it. And then you're right, you hit 50, and then you realize, like, I better move fast. I completely. So, I mean, again, Larkin said a great thing about time torn off unused for, for youth. And it's like, yeah, we know. I mean, think of the amount of shit I watched on TV when I was, when I was young. I mean, now... If I watch shit on TV, which I sometimes do at the end of the night, or I watch YouTube, I don't have a TV, I don't have a TV, but I watch, you know, if I watch something and I'm quite interested, I will watch it, at, you know, I will I will flip through it and I will watch a two-hour programme, you know, I mean, I even watched Get Back 
you know, like that. I did. I thought, you know what? I'm not. I can't be bothered to watch the whole thing. I want to watch it, but I'm going to watch it fucking fast um, because not because I'm not interested in it, but it's like you know, it's like it's it's just being yeah, it's valuing stuff and going. If I would, I would like to watch this, but I'm going to watch it fast, and I do that all the time. Same with books. You know, if I, if a book's interesting, but I don't want to read the whole thing, I'll read it really fast. I'll read it. I'll skip through it. Read it super fast, which is you know. Uh, yeah, so I agree. Time is completely valuable, which is a gift, which is an incredible gift. Because when you when you're 25, you don't realize that at all. You have no fucking clue. <laughs> no, no. And I think that the my theory is is that the the young man's artistic burst, the urgency that comes, is tied to a kind of um, kind of uh, libido. I think it's tied to like a sexual kind of. Um, yeah, urgency that you also feel that you feel like wild and sort of um alive in that sort of like you know every love affair that you have feels uh you know sort of um urgent and pressing and you're looking around with this kind of um unshakable libido and then when you get older it has nothing to do with libido the urgency has to do with that you realize that there's not as much time yeah, I think that's true. But I, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I'm also, I mean, I'm still just, I don't know, I'm still chained to an idiot, as they say. <laughs> I, mean, I still have this, I'm still, you know, I'm still, I don't know, I'm still, I'm still kind of, there was an, another one of my favourite ever quotes was, and I don't know where it even, where, where it, was, it was many years ago, reading The Enemy, there was a time where Public Image, who, you know, who were the, obviously the coolest band on the planet, were, were bitching about The Clash. And John Lydon was going, oh, they're desperate. They're desperate. The Clash are desperate. And there's this brilliant thing, like, you know, Joe Strong was such a great orator. He, he came back the following week, you know, and said, yeah, we are desperate. We're fucking desperate. And and I, I feel a bit like that. Do you know what I mean? I feel a bit like, yeah, I'm desperate, actually. I'm still desperate. I'm 62 and I'm still desperate. Uh, and that's that's good you know that's good and I, yeah I think it's but I think you're right I think but also there's, there's also there is a kind of a fire that I just kind of don't I feel very desperate yeah like like Joe Strummer did <laughs> yeah and the loss of that desperation I would think that's where artistic decline probably originated. absolutely yeah where, where you can't be bothered yeah where you just you just yeah. sort of yeah you, you just you you don't you don't try and push yourself you just make another record and that's what you do absolutely um yeah you, which is I mean, that's fine if people want to do that, but that's not that's not something that I particularly want to do, you know. No, and I think you and I, without naming names, have both heard those records, and you kind of go, "Well, I'm not going to listen to that again." That doesn't really add much to the yeah. conversation. Yeah, yeah, you know, I think I think that's sort of yeah, that that's true. I think it's making. Yeah, it depends on the place. It's, 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 yeah, it's sort of functionality as well, isn't it? It's like if it's. What's its purpose? I mean, some people just want another record so they can do another tour and they can do that stuff and it's there and it's out there and they're kind of almost acknowledging that. But yeah, some people want to try and make another record that's kind of valuable. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, and I feel bad for like a band that I love. I love the Pixies and I feel like they are always going to be held against their their past discography. And so if their new album is entertaining them, and doing what they're feeling right now accurately, and this is the record they want to make, it feels it'll always pale in comparison to like a Surfer Rosa or a Doolittle, even though artistically they might be happy with it. There's always going to be someone who's going to try to compare it to their past work, which seems like a big, uh, you know, a big thing to have to reckon with every time you make a record. 
Yeah, yeah. I think, but I think some of that's got to do with impact as well. I mean, it's like you can't, you know. I mean, for example, I'm really, I'm really enjoying the, and it's not, they're not a band that I particularly even like. There's lots of stuff I'm enjoying more, but like um, the the new Yeah Yeah Yeah's record, which seems like you know, it, it's and it's and it's and I'm, I, I come to them as someone who is not was never a fan when they came when they came up. I mean, I can acknowledge they were good, but they, they didn't mean much to me. I know they meant lots to people, but they seem to be people that have made another record and it has to mean something to them. And But they can never have the impact they had when they first came out. So I think the other thing with the Pixies is it's like, I think there is maybe a way to do stuff where you acknowledge it maybe doesn't have the impact in terms of cultural impact because of the timing thing. You know, when you sort of step outside of it, it just, it can't have that that sort of seismic moment, you know, the, the, the Pixies, you know, reinvented the wheel. I mean, music wasn't the same after the Pixies. I mean, after life, after me, they did the thing that, I mean, I always, I always find myself saying it was something like, you know, Tarantino, if you, if you make a shoot them up film, you either have to reject what Tarantino did, or you have to like reference, you know, you're somewhere along the line, you can't, you, you have to be post Tarantino doing a film like that. And on some level, if you're doing like, shouty rock or whatever you you have to be post the pixies you know you and so that's that kind of impact is a really tough call because it's like you can't you know you can't reinvent the wheel like they did at that point in surfer rosa or whatever it was that seismic moment where they they kind of something happened didn't it where rock music changed basically yeah i totally agree with that and i think that people are always i mean i shouldn't say people but i think rock critics tend to bump the new work against the old work which probably isn't the, the fairest thing to do yeah 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 i mean i think it's about it's about but i mean it, it, yes it, it, it's it's good that i guess i don't know yeah i mean you, you just I'm, yeah i wouldn't I, I don't really know the pixies new album i, I mean I, I suppose they just have to kind of carry on doing what they do it, it's maybe like a lifestyle choice as well, isn't it? I mean, they carry on touring. I mean, I'm also very, I also feel very grateful that I, I mean, I love playing shows, but that's not my living, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got a job. So I kind of like, that makes me, I think, uh, sort of, I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I mean, I don't have to worry about playing a tour in order to make money. Do you know what I mean? I don't have to release an album every two years in order to get an advance and make some money and do a tour and sort of do that. I can play gigs when I want to play gigs. And I love playing shows and I can release, but it's, you know what I mean? It's not, so that's kind of quite important to me. Um, and I think maybe with the Pixies and that's fair enough. They, they, they've got a career, haven't they? Very much a career where yeah. they release a record, they play a tour and they, you know, the people, you know, so they can make, they make another record and that's what they do. Good luck to them. But yeah, I think it's, it's maybe on a different level in a sense, because it's a, it's work and it can be great work, but it's work. Early on with the loft or the profits, what did you have a plan or did you think I'll do this for a couple of years and then I'll do in other words were you were you always planning to be a lifer or were you or was there even a plan in place no there was absolutely no plan in place I mean I was I very much came from a place where no one in my family was a musician the idea that I would do anything to do with music was considered so stupid and so ridiculous and so you, you doing, you writing songs, you, I mean, I did not come from a creative family or any kind of, there was no, there wasn't that kind of, I mean, my father was, but he was, you know, he, he, he died very young. So it's like, so I wasn't, it was, so obviously that must have come from him in a certain way, but, but my basic vibe, well, they weren't bad people, but it was very, it wasn't the idea of 
making something creative was just considered completely stupid. It's like, well, why aren't you an estate agent? That was always the dream. It was like, you should be an estate agent. Ironically, you're talking about real estate. That would have been a dream. That would have been a success. That would have been like, he's doing the right thing. He's doing something sensible. Um, so when I ended up making music, making a living out of it and making records, I was so surprised because it seemed like such an utterly stupid thing to do. It seemed so unlikely that anybody like me would do that from where I came from and from everyone I knew that I, I don't know. I guess I was kind of like, wow, well, I guess I'm doing this now. I mean, no, no plan at all. I, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I didn't, I just didn't really think about it. I just did it, you know, and I, I couldn't help myself. And, and I think on some level I was sort of stubborn enough and stupid enough to keep on doing it. Cause I think it's definitely an element of that. There's a definitely an element of stubbornness and stupidity because if you're, it's a bit like if you're smart, you'd think, well, you know what? I mean, there's been plenty of times in my life where I could have jumped off and done something different. And maybe I just don't have the imagination to do anything different, you know, because on some level, you know, I, I mean, I was there at the birth of the Internet as we were. Do you know what I mean? There, there was a, you know, the, I remember the people that designed my Wisdom of Harry, Folux label website, you know, they were these people who you know did ended up doing warps website and kylie minogue's website and i'm sure they're probably hugely successful now you know i mean lovely and, and i could easily have gone you know what yeah i'm going to do something to do with this because this is really interesting and creative as well but i was like no i don't want to i want to write songs and make music so i think it's a stubbornness to it as well you know just a sort of sheer bloody mindedness of i'm going to keep on doing this for better or worse as as a young man what was your touchstone what was the inspiration what was the thing that made you pick up a guitar and say because you're coming from a family that what that was so not creative they were surprised that you were creative yeah 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 right yeah. so what what did you see or what did you hear that sort of blew your brain up that made you want to do it what what i did was i it's very i mean it's because i don't know if you probably have seen it, but we both wrote one didn't we the 33 and a third book yeah you know, the one yeah. i wrote by richard Hell. i mean in a sense that you know what it made me it made me examine why why i like richard hell but why i got into music basically it was a kind of i mean it's in the book where i talk about you know the, the, the older guy nigel lynn had lent me raw power this would have been 1974 or 75 and i'm cycling down the road with raw power on my bike and 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 it's just like you know and he also had like vandergraaf generator and uh lots of bowie but it's uh, and the mc5 as well so it was a conglomeration of of that and the enemy was incredibly important like nick kent's writing ian mcdonald's writing. so there was that plus the discovery of jack kerouac and william burroughs and things like that. That was a really big thing for me as well. So it's it's a pretty straightforward kind of, um, you know, I don't know what the word would be, but it's like a straightforward kind of like, I hate these words like pop, poor, or smogger, smogger. It was it was a, it was a selection of alternative type stuff of you know serious young men. You know, it's beatnik. It's beatnik shit, basically, is what it was. It's you know, so yeah. I discovered I discovered the nineteen seventy four or seventy five version of being a beatnik, and I you know, and I remember listening to that. I used to go to the local record shop again. That amazing thing, you know, the church of the record shop, Howard Leach in Colchester, and I knew the guy that worked there. I'd hang out and I listened to stuff, and I listened to the Velvet Underground and Nico. I remember when I was about thirteen or fourteen in the shop on the headphones, and I listened to Heroin, and I thought this is amazing. I got it home and thought. 
this is horrible. I hate this record. This is so weird. Sunday morning completely confused me because I thought I thought this was weird, but it's not. And then I grew to love it. And exactly the same thing happened with uh, Trout Moss Replica, which she also played me. And I listened to Frownland and thought, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. And then I got it home and thought, oh, for fuck's sake, there's no there's no music on some of these. It's just it's just cacophonous. And then again, I came to love it. So I was well educated. I was lucky because I was educated by people in record shops. And, and I also, the local gig place where I lived in Coastal was Essex University. So... I was able to go and see, like, for example, I was lucky enough to see Can. In fact, no, before the first gig I ever saw was organized by the school maths teacher. I don't understand. It took us, took us all on a coach to Clacton to see Hawkwind when Lemmy was still in them. Um, you know, wow. We were smoking weed as well. We were smoking weed at the gig. It's like the Clacton Town Hall in the days when you could smoke, but in the days when you could smoke weed as well. So it's like smoking weed in the Clacton Town Hall, watching Hawkwind. And I think coming, watching them come on stage and watching them clearly come on stage smoking a joint, that was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my whole life ever. So, so we went to that. And then, you know, like the local guy, again, that we'd go and hang out with, he did the light, he did light shows. I don't think this was, he was, he did some artworks. We used to go and hang out. This is a silly, if you don't mind me, it's a stupid story, but it's quite funny. We used to go and hang out at my friend Vincent's house. And Vincent's mum was agoraphobic. So for some reason, Vincent, she was happy. That's what that happens. I mean, it happened you know, we, where one house becomes the party house. And we were 13, so we weren't exactly party, but we all would be in Vincent's room and listening to music and stuff like that. And and again, again, I remember quite clearly with drugs, actually, it was like a joint going round. And I remember thinking, and at school, it was like, if you smoke a joint, you will become a heroin addict. It is absolutely definite. And I remember it going round and me thinking, I'll risk it for a biscuit, you know, I'll see, I'll see how it goes. Because at school, that, that was an absolute, we had big long talks from the police about you, you know, that gateway drug idea. Anyway, the guy next door was this weird hippie that lived in a garage. Um, I think it was in his parents' house, but he lived in the garage upstairs. So we'd go up there and there was a weed connection. He did artworks, but he also did light shows. And Can were playing at Essex University, and we'd always go to the gigs, and he did the light show. So we saw, you know, we, we, we would go to the gigs every week anyway. But so, you know, I was lucky enough to see Can in 1974. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, so, you know, with, with Tony Debsky doing the light show, do you know what I mean? The, the weird hippie that lived next door, you know, um, doing the oil wheel, I think it was, well, you know, whatever that thing. But yeah, so, so, I, so I had an education in, you know, like, for example, a really key show for me at that time was um, the Count Bishops. You remember the Count Bishops? You know, they, they, the Frankie Miller band were meant to be playing and they didn't show up. So the Count Bishops, the support band, ended up headlining. And for me in 1975 to see a band wearing, not wearing flares, wearing leather jackets, playing kind of, it would have been R&B, punky R&B, but it was a massive moment. It was that Dr. Feelgood moment where you're like, well, so... So again, that that was my world. You know, what I mean, that was my world. That's that's what I everything was based on. You know, I was talking to Justin from Delamitri, and he was telling me how much he loves the Fall and and Joy Division, but his music sounds nothing like the Fall or Joy Division. And yeah. for you, like you know, you love you're listening to the, like the Stooges, the MC Five, Velvet Underground, Can. Yet your music doesn't really sound mm. like that stuff. So so what it does, it's almost like it lights the pilot light of creativity and then your stuff filters through that and comes out in its own way which is really cool yeah that's interesting i mean i think i think the can thing is something i've always 
it's something because obviously doing the wisdom of Harry and Ellis Island Sound, and now I've got a project called The Attendant as well, which is kind of spoken word stuff. I don't know if you're aware of that project that I do as well. So, so that's so that's there's another side of me that always does do the kind of weirder old stuff and program yeah. stuff and doesn't do stuff on guitar. So for me, that's always there. But yeah, there, there's still that kind of it's a classicism. I think I just love that classicism of trying to make. I mean, I was always amazed. Um, I remember. Andy from The Loft, who was a journalist as well, did a trip with Mark Smith. Um, and Mark Smith was like, I love The Loft. I absolutely love The Loft. And Andy was like, really? What were you? I thought you'd despise us. Do you know what I mean? But he absolutely adored us. Same with Rob Lloyd as well. We played with the Nightingales recently. Yeah, you know, so, so I find that quite flattering that I admit that sometimes I feel like I'm painting watercolors, yet people that make very aggy, shonky music, <laughs> Sort of, you know, very sort of aggy music. They like, they recognise something. I don't know that that maybe sounds pretty, but actually is has other as a spirit, which is slightly different. Um, yeah, I mean, I sort of, I think, I think it was that love of classicism. I think the other thing about music is, if I can, you said what well, is interesting. I'm thinking out loud actually, but I think you, you made me think of something really quite key. Um, a friend of mine who was, I was the first band I was in was a band called Damp Jungle, who you're probably not aware of. We did finally, we were going to have a release on, anyway, it's an side thing. Someone like Simon Reynolds for a very complicated set of reasons really didn't like me or the Weather Prophet, Simon Reynolds from The Melody Maker. Um, but he loved this thing called Fuck Off Tapes, which were cassette tapes. And we were going to be on Fuck Off Tapes, my band Damp Jungle, who were completely lo-fi. It, it did finally come out on a, on a weird label, cassette label in 2012. Um, so it's this weird, my friend Adam, who was my co-worker in that band, he ended up running an art scene, he runs an amazing art center up in, uh, in the Lake District where he does amazing cutting edge, strange, but brilliant communal art. Um, so I was gonna say, what was my point here? I've lost my way with the, with the Adam thing, with the Adam thing. Uh, that's really annoying. So I just went a bit, I went a bit moronic then. Hold on, senior moment. What was it about? It's about Anyway, that's right. Okay. So they've taken over this pub and turned it into this art centre. It's still a pub. He's wanted me to curate the jukebox. So I'm getting to curate some of the jukebox. And so then I've just made a Spotify playlist, which is going to be out soon when they bought all the records and put it in the jukebox, called Youth Club 1972. So sorry, long answer to a short question. That's a really big part of my music taste. I'll send you that Spotify playlist if you like, because it's not, I haven't done, I haven't, we're going to do like a, there's going to be a film of it when we talk about it. I'm going to go out and be a guest at the Arts Centre and we're going to unveil the new track, the tracks that they're all, they're all going off and buying on, uh, you know, on the internet, whatever, you know, buying on eBay and all, all the weird old, but so, you know, I'm, I've done this Youth Club 1972, which kind of was sort of vaguely true to when I was at the Youth Club in 1972. And I've been very wary in terms of the compiling that it's not, Obviously, you compile Youth Club 1972 and you've got an absolute treasure trove of stuff that's amazing. But I've kind of made sure to put things like, I don't know, Tom Jones on it rather than T-Rex or maybe, a, you know, so I think maybe T-Rex. But, you know, avoiding the because there's so many you can just fill it with obvious classics. Go, well, that's right. But actually what I was trying to be a little bit more like what we were actually listening to. In, in 1972 in the youth club so anyway so so what i'm saying is i think a lot of the loft and the, the loft and the weather products came from that actually and even the stuff yeah, i'm doing now 
Yeah, I, I find it fascinating because for me, it's like as a as a 15 year old, I got really into the doors and I started listening to, um, you know, and, and start, I started reading Kerouac as well. And, and you know, a few years later and the sort of even though, you know, I, I didn't I didn't sort of plant my flag in in either of those um, people and that I kept listening to them over the years or reading them over the years, they did make me understand sort of the elasticity of language, the the boundaries that could be pushed. And, um, you know, in, in I, I kind of feel that for, you know, a 15 year old American kid, the doors are something you kind of have to go through anyway. It's a phase you, you do. Um, but I, yeah, I yeah. love the, the idea that you can take these mighty swings that I didn't know you could take because I was talking to somebody about, um, Shakespeare and John Donne. And I was saying how I don't really like Shakespeare or John Donne. And they asked me why, because it's not a very sophisticated thing to say. And I said, because they didn't make me want to be a writer. They made mm -hmm. me feel like I couldn't write, right? They didn't They didn't do anything for me. And I mean, I love the stories. I love the sentiments, but I don't read the, I don't read John Donne or Shakespeare with any great pleasure at all, because there never was an invitation in the work um, other than to read it and be sort of stupefied by it. Whereas... Jim Morrison, Jack Kerouac, Marky Smith, um, the Jazz Butcher made me feel like I could write like that. That my, my brain is responding in that in that way. Did you? Is that what happened to you as well? Yeah, I mean, it's funny you should say that because I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a definite. I mean, I've read a lot of Shakespeare on more than one occasion, and a few years ago, I, I you know I, I re reread the sonnets and. I just don't get it. I really don't get it. I even went to the Globe about ten years ago and thought, "I'm going to go and what? I'm going to? I'm really going to just get this. It's the right age for me to get it." And I did an English literature degree, and I'm like, "I think it's overrated." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's overrated. It's like you know, and it was it was quite painful watching it at the Globe because what you had was these actors and actresses putting on an amazing show to make some incomprehensible bollocks interesting to the audience who is of course sold out because there was nothing in it that was in itself interesting i mean different times i guess you know it's like it's just you know there, there's a whole different sensibility i guess i mean who knows but i completely agree with you i mean i have no interest in it whatsoever i think it's nothing about being older isn't it you can go do you know what it doesn't do it for me i'd rather read you know i'd rather read whatever i don't know i'd rather read steve jones's I mean, I, I, my, my reading tastes tend to veer massively between, you know, on the one hand, I'll be reading Emily Dickinson and then I'll also be really enjoying reading the Steve Jones autobio, which is, you know, as told to, which is a great piece of work, actually. But, you know, I mean, so there's, so I, I, I veer from very, very more, more sort of earnest stuff to very unearnest stuff, which I, I love, you know. So I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. Yeah. yeah you and I, I'm a fellow English major and I felt like, I'm not respond. I mean, like, there's nothing wrong with the Fairy Queen, but I just it just doesn't really make me want to pick up a pen. Whereas like Hemingway made me want to start writing. Of course, of course, you yeah. know, Fitzgerald made me want to start writing. And so I think that, you know, for me as a writer, I'm not a musician at all, but as a writer, um, you know, I responded to these things. I'm not I, I couldn't defend, you know, Kerouac's work all of it now and say, you know, it's the greatest stuff ever, but it did explode my brain in a way it needed to be exploded. And I think that's, that's an completely. interesting thing to have. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. I think it's, you, you just have a sort of a kind of a cultural fit, which just, you just get, it gets to something in it. And it's just that kind of, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, you know, it, it's very, 
and then then you end up being a certain kind of young man <laughs> of which which still exists do you know what i mean it doesn't it doesn't change you know i mean you know, other people might blow their minds but it's still basically the same i mean i i really enjoy I don't know, for example, I, obviously with my students, I get various students doing music. And it's like, you know, there's, there's a group called Regressive Left who are fantastic, who are really starting to break through. They're on Pitchfork Paris. Pitchfork have curated them to play in Paris. And, you know, and their music is a bit more electronic, but it's basically incredibly, you know, political, artistic, complex, literary. Do you know what I mean? It's all of the things. Do you know what I mean? It's it's almost all boxes ticked, you know. Um, yeah, so I get that. I think that there is that that that's what happens. And I, and I agree with the absolutely with the writing thing. It's getting something that's actually a bit more. I mean, for example, recently I've I mean I'm a huge reader of poetry and I've really enjoyed reading CB Smith actually at Nick Cave's recommendation, because it's like because Nick Cave is, you know, because he you know Stephen Smith, I probably was always a little bit, little bit like, well, it's not complex enough. It's not difficult enough. It's too, it's too mainstream. It's too, too entertaining. Um, and of course, it's not. It's like, that's what, that's what pop music's like. That's the world of like pop music. It's like, let's look down on it because it's actually easy to listen to. And it's not, it doesn't, it's not painful. It's generous. I mean, I think that's I mentioned generous right at the beginning. I think being generous is quite important. It's like entertaining people is, uh, it's lovely it's communicating with people i mean trying to communicate i mean that's the that's also the absolute beauty of making music playing live especially but also yeah making this record i'm i'm really um really pleased and really flattered by lots of people who seem to have responded to the record i've just made which is amazing you know things where you're like wow god that's fantastic it it worked you know it communicated it got through which is lovely you know it's an amazing thing um and it feels incredibly unlikely but it's amazing when it happens you know sick form rock boys dressed in black Planning out the future Never coming back Sitting by the river With an ice cold beer Come September We'll be out of here Cause the high street's dead so we live in our heads Me and Sam We got the plan Sixth form rock boys Blue skin dreams Staying up all night Tripping on the green Praying to the future On the bedroom wall Pentagram at midnight Behind the village hall The wall of sound It's all around Sam and me Going to get free Sixth 
finish the record when I see the timing and it's 37 minutes you know it's like it's like the CD moment isn't it where you're like I, I can't remember when when I started doing it probably quite early on like everyone did it's like of course you're not going to make a 77 minute CD of course you're going to make a 37 you know and we you know when and when the timing for time on earth comes up and it, you know on the final digital master or whatever you like and I'd like to look over and say, oh yeah 37 good that's good that's what it should be you know because it's a case that's a, and I actually have a I have a real laugh with my partner because we'll watch she's a massive film buff and we'll often watch a film often a really interesting film or movie or something like that and about 38 minutes in I'm like um can I get some tea or something like that I'm just a bit because it's like I I and I figured out I thought that's the fucking length of an album that's my time span that's why probably I love Mad Men so much or Succession or something because they're all in those they're all in those blocks that are album length you know I can not anyway I really it is it is honestly to the second about 38 minutes into any film no matter how good I start to get a bit antsy and want to do something else <laughs> was there pressure when when CDs took over and you could fit 80 minutes of music on a CD. Was there a pressure for an artist? Did you feel it where it's like, I'm going to have to fill it with 23 songs? Not at all, not at all. I mean, I was also lucky enough, I and mean, I'm incredible. All the labels I've ever been on, I just have been completely, we do what the fuck we do, do you know what I mean? And it's like, whatever the artist wants to do is fine. I mean, we talk about it as friends, but it's like, no, never any such that. I mean, the only thing, I, I mean, I think where CDs made a big difference was, and this is a sort of theoretical area, isn't it? I guess where it, it really worked in the world of chill out, you know, because chill out CDs were great because they were 77 minutes and you could have an immersive 77 minute experience. And on classical music, it worked great for. And I think probably the way it affected us was probably just that, which obviously I now look at slightly irritating thing of like you've got the album, then you've got like extra tracks. Mm. B-sides gone, which were there anyway. But I mean, obviously it's that thing now where you want, if you get a CD, you kind of want it, you do just want it to be 10 tracks. You don't just want, you don't want every other bloody track on it or anything like that. I mean, even on Spotify, I, I watched, um, obviously I watched, what's it called, you know, the Get Back. Um, and I thought I want to listen to Get Back again. And it's really hard to find a fucking version of that album that's just the sodding songs on the record with that, you know, every single fart and pop they ever did to make the bloody thing. It's like, it's not that, it's not very good either. It's a bit third rate, but it's like, I just want the bloody third rate thing with all 10 tracks or whatever it is, you know. So, so no, sure, no, not at all. Not at all. I, I was looking the other day, I've got the, um, I've got the advanced, the expanded version of Armed Forces, which I, I love that record. And there's like, you know, 35 extra songs, but I've never listened to that. I've only listened to the, to the, yeah, to whatever exactly, the yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's great fun if you're kind of, if it's kind of obsessive, isn't it? I can't, I can't think there are things where I've really enjoyed the extra tracks and stuff. I really love, I can't think right now, but there's some things where I've really, 
really enjoyed digging into the extra tracks because it's been like super exciting just hearing something that's completely different. But it has to be, it goes with being obsessed with something, doesn't it? You know, you, you, you like to, it's a remarkable thing to hear it from another angle. But you know you're being stupid because you know it doesn't matter, you know. Right. Or in your career, were you um you were surrounded by such amazing people? Were you a competitive guy? Like when you you know, if like for example, um if a band, a contemporary band puts a record out where you go, man, that's really good. I got to up my game. Did you, did you think about that or did you, were you just competitive with yourselves? I don't really remember. Yeah, I think I was. I think we, yeah, we were quite, I don't know. I think it was maybe a, a bit of both. I mean, I don't know what I'm always, what I always think back on is one particular episode. I remember we, we played a, we did a tour, the Weather Brothers did a tour with Primal Scream in Holland, which was enormous fun. Like, I did more, this tour around Holland, we were all appallingly behaved, all of us, but we had great fun. And it was in the way, days when you could get a tour of Holland. We weren't very well known either, us, but, and, you know, well attended, you know, we toured in Holland. And I remember there was a video of one of the shows of, of us and Primal Scream. And I remember McGee telling me that Bobby stayed over at his place and, uh, there was just the one copy of the video. Bobby stayed over and he basically taped over the Primal Screen performance because he didn't want it. And I remember thinking, I remember being really impressed because I was like, wow, you, you didn't think that was that was good enough, you know. So you're gonna you're gonna get rid of it, which I thought was like, wow, you know, and I'm like, you know, it's just and I thought that was that that was very telling that 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 Bob's got a you know a real, even at that point, had a real eye on curating everything exactly as he wanted it. Well, exactly as he wanted it, a sense of quality. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he would just say, well, we were fucking shite, you know, in some ways, which right. I can also understand, but, but in some ways, the fact that he bothered to stay up later after everyone had gone to bed and carefully erase it up until the weather promise bit came on, and then it obviously wasn't going to erase us, you know. Um, just very sweet, but but very, I thought that was, that was not competitive in a nice way it was like you know i think mainly myself mainly ourselves i think we weren't really we weren't that aware of because things were i mean compared with now they weren't fractured at all but they were still quite fractured and separated and you know you kind of you you know you just saw things moving and certain things I, i always remember being at a show that we were playing and hearing freak scene just when it had come out, DJ was playing it before. And that was a bit of a moment where I'm like, oh, fuck. Oh, oh, something's happening here. That was a real moment where I kind of like was like, this is a big thing. This is so, I mean, I loved it. But also I was just like, I was blown away by it. But it was also a moment where it's like, hmm, this is, this. I've not heard this before. Never heard this before. What's happening on this record? So maybe there was that. That made me feel like we had to do more raise that game on some level i think nirvana did that in in a lot of ways too where a lot of bands went oh i guess we're i guess we need either need to go a different direction or we needed to quit yeah yeah no completely it's the post tarantino thing isn't it yeah you you, yeah. you can't do something without without having done that you 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 have to you have to raise your game or you have or you have to like yeah you have to do one thing or the other you have to react to it you either have to ignore it or you have to but it's there it's there and it changes it changes the game absolutely yeah. What was what was your relationship with uh with Pat Fish? Like were you guys have you were, you guys were pals for years? Yeah, we were sort of on and off pals. I mean, we were kind of like 
um, gentleman traveler. I mean, so we so we 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 got to know each other because we we're all on creation because it kind of became like a bit of a, a, a dysfunctional family together. All of a sudden, so we spent a lot of time hanging out with creation. But then, oh, just after the weather probably split up, maybe we hadn't split up. I did a few tours with Pat where I we we did a, I mean we did quite a long tour of Germany where we both had guitars and we were like it was a double header tour basically of Pete Astor and Pat Fish so it was so, so I got to know him very well better on them because we were close with that but he, he also lived around the corner so so sort of on and off stuff and then I think we did a tour when I did the Holy Road band we did a tour with the Jazz Butcher as well and again. So early 90s, spent quite a lot of time with them and then just kind of on and off and maybe I'd go up and see him in Northampton. So I didn't see him very often, but there was always a kind of a, a story in terms of the different, the different, uh, the different uh, narratives, if you like. But I knew him more than well enough to be a, a kind of a fellow traveller, I think. And a, and a fan of the work. Yeah, no, completely, yeah. Yeah, so we, we, we were very much sort of two... Obviously, we had very, we got on very well. You know, we understood each other. I mean, I think it's like that was that was an obvious thing. You know. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. He uh, he was a, a a remarkable remarkable writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, obviously, in his passing was something that was kind of really uh, a big thing. Even, and I think sometimes the passing of it almost they almost sometimes their passing becomes almost symbolic. I mean, he was a friend. But he wasn't like someone. It wasn't like I was planning to see him the following week. Do you know, it wasn't. It wasn't like it wasn't like a family member or somebody you're close to. Um, but in a way, it made it more symbolic and more powerful in a weird way because it's like, wow, this is this is big. You know, this is big. In terms of your creative process, are you a guy who is? Like, is the guitar always in your hand? Are you always thinking about writing, or will you take weeks off and not and and give yourself distance? Um, and the guitar's not always in my hand. I mean, it used to be when I was younger, but I, I feel like it's much more of a tool now. I mean, I, I probably I always make something every day, but I'll, I mean, I'm so for at the moment I'm doing a lot of programming. I'm doing a lot of programming for the attendance stuff. I'm working on an attendant album, so I'm, it's been a real palate cleanser to be doing that. That's not we kind of started one as well, so I'm I'm sort of work picking that up and doing a load of programming on that. So that's not playing the guitar, but it's still working on those tracks and singing on those. Um, um, no, it's a different, it's a sort of a different tool. So, but, but for example, I, I, you know, like I've got some solo shows coming up and I've got some rehearsal time booked where I go into a rehearsal room and I, I sit and play the guitar for three hours and sing, you know, and I, and that's a huge pleasure. I turn my phone off and I just go there and spend three hours just in flow, basically just singing songs and playing, not really working on songs, more like actually just performing them. To, to, to no one <laughs> um, but it's like it's a lovely thing to do it's like, I mean I could you could call it practicing but it's not really practicing I don't play any of the songs more than once but it's like uh, that's a huge pleasure so that's maybe it's maybe a little bit more sort of demarcated now you know now I, I work I mean I've got guitars you can see there's one there oh yeah um, but I mean I don't I mean also I'm not one of those people that has loads of guitars I mean I, I really am I think this is something that happens to males of a certain age 
And probably a lot of the people you speak to will have a room of guitars. It's yeah. just it inevitably happens. I don't, you know, I've got two guitars, you know, I've got one other one in the cupboard. That's it. But it's like, but it's like, that's, that's it. I've got my acoustic guitar, which amazingly I've had since 1989. And I got my electric guitar, which I've had since 1991. So it's like, that's it. Do you know what I mean? And they're, and they're both beautiful instruments. So it's like, um, yeah. So what I'm saying, so but they're there, they're there to be used once in a while. But no, I, I'm not always not always doing that. But I'm always thinking about how to uh, always thinking about ideas. But I think what's very important to me is that songs are made rather than I'm I'm not a big fan of the craft of songwriting, even though it's incredibly important to me. It's a conceptual idea. I'm you know I think it's really. I think a song is an idea as much as it is a set of chords. Obviously, the chords are important, but and it's, you know, we go back to like anybody can do it. Like you said, you read Kerouac and you feel like I can do this, whether you can or not. You feel like you can, and it's exactly the same as when you see the famous punk rock paradigm. And it's true. You think it, it allowed people in, whereas obviously, you know, when I was when I listened to Yes when I was seven, when I was thirteen, I was like, this is not for me, you know. <laughs> And right. I can't do this. This is like, and also I remember very clearly so there's the same guy that works in the record shop when I was maybe thir just turning 13. He lent me uh, Machine Head and Dark Side of the Moon. They must have just come out. And I remember going home and listening to Dark Side of the Moon, and it said they were all playing. There was the lineup, and I had a visual image as a 13 year old of Pink Floyd. Because he didn't have the inserts, as these men in white coats with biros and short hair. <laughs> because as a 13-year-old Slade fan, I was like, there was no pictures on the record. I just assumed they were all like scientists. <laughs> they were like, they were like, you know, you know what I mean? I mean, it's amazing. It's astonishing. You can't imagine that being the case. But the idea that when I saw pictures of them, they were like long hairs wearing T-shirts and jeans. I was like, what? They're, no, they're, they're, they're professors, aren't they? With, you know... <laughs> with horn rim glasses and white coats. It's literally how I thought they looked. So I think, you know, so I think there's there's a sort of a, you know, there's you're let in in certain ways in, in music. So that that's, and that's where it relates to me in terms of songs. Like I'm always thinking about songs. I mean, I, I'm always, I'm always writing stuff now on my phone. You know, I've always, my notes are full of song titles and things like that. I've got loads of, I've always got loads of songs on the go. And, and marinating. I mean, there are songs on on Time on Earth that actually started in two thousand and eight. Unbelievably, I remember this one that started that started started in two thousand and eight. Um, and you know, I mean, I haven't been writing it constantly since then. But it, you know, I, I sort of it's it's like you know, it's kind of good, which is why I didn't. I mean, it was it was finished in two thousand and eight, but it wasn't right, so I never released it. And then you know, then I took it, went back to it again, maybe four years later, and tweaked it again and rewrote it again it's still not right so put it back and you know and then then finally about maybe two years ago I was like right now I'm going to take it out oh actually now I think I've nailed it you know well I've nailed I mean it feels right it feels like it's written I mean there is I do feel quite a strong sense I mean it's an illusion but in terms of songwriting there is that thing I mean lots of songwriters say it and it's a bit bullshitty because writing a song is about craft it is about craft knowledge all that stuff but there is an element where a song has to feel like it's already been there. You know, and, and it's that, and I think, you know, the, the, the song on the album that I started, I realised I'd started in 2008. It, it, you know, it, it, it was only about two years ago that it, I got it to the stage where I dug out the stuff that was actually there in, in my mind, you know. So, so I've always got songs on the go. So, so on some level, yes. But not in the sense that I'm always writing songs on the guitar. I'm always writing songs, thinking about tunes. Maybe it'll be a programming thing. Maybe it'll be a guitar thing. 
but you know, well, I'm thinking you have stuff that's you know been sitting around for that long unfinished. Also, you know, suggests that you have an incredible amount, amount of um, artistic patience that you're willing to let it sort of sit there until you're ready for it. Yeah, it's patience, but I think it's also easy because if you've got loads and loads of songs, it's not a mad rush. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's kind of. I mean, I've got enough songs for the new album. If I want, I've got I've got nine songs. I think that I'm happy with. I've got about thirty songs that I could put out. But I mean, there's about nine that I'm happy with, but I'm not sure I'm going to do them because they maybe don't, they don't, I don't know. I don't know whether, I don't know whether they're good enough. I don't, not that they're not good enough, I think they are good enough because that's why I've been quite tight about me, but they need to be, they need to be doing something interesting. I mean, I think maybe the next, I don't know what, the, what I feel very strongly about the next record is I want to do something that actually pushes me again. You know, I mean, maybe I'll make it a collaborative record. Maybe for a while I was thinking, maybe I won't write the music on the next record. Maybe I'll make, all the songs will be co-written or something like that. I don't know. Or some, just, or I don't know, just something that, that, that you know, that, that sort of, which is why doing The Attendant is fantastic because it's not Piasta song. So I kind of like, that feels kind of right to be, to be doing that. And I'm, you know, I may also, I mean, I, I think we're positing the idea of a, uh, a record of, of of me doing versions of old songs with the band that I've got at the moment, probably with the band. Um, I'm I'm thinking of calling it. I can try this exclusive. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm thinking of probably calling it uh, a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, and then kind I'll of take like, that out, but yeah, it's great. And I, I'm going to so I, I like the idea of just having a sort of I probably I'm going to see how maybe just have a sort of you know do a set of ten songs maybe the obvious one maybe sort of one or two of the obvious ones maybe none of the obvious ones but just kind of revisiting them maybe in a slightly more vocal first way I mean there'll be band things but they won't be kind of rock band things they'll be far more kind of like. I mean, it'd be like the, like that, like the album, but they'll be, they'll be. I'll be making them with Ian and Andy and Neil Scott and Sh and Sean Reed because they're amazing people to play with. But quite minimal, I think, quite minimal as a set of songs. So that's been posited as something because I really enjoy playing the whole catalogue of what I've done. I'm really proud of it. It's great. It's great doing that, and it's great playing solo sometimes because you get that. I can do requests and stuff like that, and I can kind of access everything, which I think is a really nice thing to do as a, as yeah. a performer. You know. I mean, I know that, that there's the, I like that you resist the idea of over-intellectualizing the craft, the process to sort of, right, let it happen, keep pushing yourself. Um, I'm with you on that. And I there is one thing I'm careful about when I'm writing. I do feel those turns, those familiar turns back to what I was doing when I was younger, which are, which are easy turns for me to make. And I don't want to make those anymore. Yeah, um, yeah. Do, you, do you find that you battle old reflexes where you're like, oh, I could just, I could probably just finish this in an e in a way I know how to finish it, even though it's not really what I want to do. Yeah, I think it's that thing of pushing yourself. Absolutely, it's that thing of pushing yourself. I, I completely agree. I think, I mean, a, a book that I really enjoyed, and I resisted reading it because it was such an obvious book to read, was that was the Nick Cave, Sean O'Hagan book, um, which I can thoroughly recommend. I don't know if you've read it, but it is really, it's a beautiful book. And, you know, and I, I'm not, I'm, you know, a friend of mine said about Nick Cave, he's a bit of a ham. And I thought, God, you're so right. He is a bit of a ham. <laughs> he's, he is a bit of a ham and I like his stuff and I don't like his stuff and I find it a bit overblown. And if I hear the word railroad one more time on one of his bloody records, even now he still has a railroad, you know, it's all that fucking bullshit. Anyway, but some of it is beautiful and amazing. But the book 
is fascinating in his process. And he talks a lot about like making a record where he challenges himself and almost has to sort of dump what he does. I mean, he seems very, you know, he's a very serious, engaged and skillful craftsperson in terms of what he does. He talks very, very articulately about making a new record and the first, in the initial impulse, which is the thing you're talking about, where he does what he does. And then he says, no, this is not going to work. I need to take it apart. Um, and I think his stuff has really moved forward, actually. I think he's done some really interesting things. Of right? So he's proof positive of that because he hasn't stayed in the same place. Um, so, yeah, so that I mean, I'm, so that that rings, that reminds me of that. And that's a bit like what I think. I do have enough songs for a new record, but in a way I'd rather do something that moves sideways from that for a while um, until I've got something that is a bit more like, it's not, you know, and another set of songs from me, you know, which will be good songs, but I want something that's maybe a little, that's doing something slightly more interesting. You know? uh, a friend of mine was asking me a few months ago, what, what, what's one of the saddest songs you've ever heard? And I said, oh, you got to hear this Weather Prophet song on the Judge's record about your father on the train. Yeah, yeah. That song, just when I first heard that song, it just broke my heart in half, and I, I couldn't listen to it for years because it made me too sad. <laughs> it was like oh, so sad. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's that's well, that's good. Yeah, that's really um, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's just so heartbreaking, and it you know because for me, like Hollow Heart is one of my all-time favorite songs by anybody. It, it's just the greatest, and and that the train song about your father is also on that record, and I've always like. I was like sidestep because it just it just was so heartbreaking for me. Right. It's so sad. Yeah, you know. Wow, it's amazing to make, make that kind of contact. Yeah, it's lovely to make that that impact. Yeah, that was that was kind of like the the thing. Yeah, just trying to write as best as you can, but also trying to write. I mean, I sort of. I mean, I'm very aware of you know. There's a lot of songs about death on the new record, and trying to kind of write about it, and you know, and with a song like Undertaker, really trying to write in a way that wasn't maybe. That was complicated to talking about death. That wasn't just straight up. It's really sad someone's died. You know, it's actually it's quite complicated when people die sometimes because sometimes it isn't just. Sometimes it's a relief when people die. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes it's kind of like it's and it's and it's it's mixed. So I thought I wanted to. I really. Um, I mean, I hope that kind of worked in the sense where it isn't necessarily. You know, the, the song doesn't articulate the obvious sense of someone's died. It's really sad. Do you know what I mean? It's like it is really sad, but it's also complex as well. So was that a subject you were trying to get your head around as a young man? Was that is that you're hearing somebody sort of grapple with what it meant for their own life and and what it meant in a sort of a larger context? What you mean in terms of a song like Born in Between? You know, I just never really thought about it. I mean, I, I, it sounds really cheesy, but I mean to say that, but it's like you just literally for me. If if I had if I could summon an authentic emotion, I just would like honor that. I guess if I could honor the emotion, which comes total Kerouac, isn't it? I mean, it comes from that thing. I mean, it, it, I mean, it could probably it could probably allow you to do some awful bullshit as well. It's, but it's like if I was honoring the truth of the emotion, that was enough for me. That was that was my guiding light in a sense, and it wasn't like I I didn't have to think about anything beyond that point. It's like I'm doing this. This is what I'm doing. Am I telling the truth? I think I'm telling the truth. Am I telling the emotional truth? Sorry, that's the important thing, isn't it? Am I telling the emotional truth for me? And I think that's that's also really key, isn't it? I mean, so it's, I think it's one of the one of the tropes of um, 
I don't know, is it, is it, is it relational therapy or something like that? I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not trained in this, so I'm just making this up. But in the sense of like, you know, when you're having the the, the big argument with someone, you tell them how they how it makes you feel, not what they should be doing that you're not happy with, because it's right. not for you to say. It's, I mean, and that's a really great little, it's a really great thing. Is It's like, this is what it feels like for me. This is how you made me feel. Not don't do that, do this, you're doing this, you're doing that. And I think it's a little bit like that with the song. If you can be truthful, if this is how you feel, this is how you feel. It doesn't make it a good song. That's important too. But, you know, it, I, that, that, was, that was my guide in a sense. It's sort of harnessing that spark which lives in that moment. I, I guess. I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it is. I think it's, I think it's hard to... I don't know. I think it's just he's trying to approach it in all sorts of different ways. I mean, oh, and one thing that really helped me write a song about bereavement was that was a there's a, a poet called Paul Farley, who's a fantastic poet. And one of his sort of poetry things was to write down 10 facts about something and then have two columns, 10 facts about something and then 10 things related to the facts that make no sense at all. And then get rid of the facts and just have the ones that make no sense at all. And that kind of that gave me a really useful way to express something really difficult. If I'd expressed it head on, I know I wouldn't have been able to wrestle it to the ground, or I wouldn't wrestle it. To, I wouldn't have been able to capture it. And I was able to capture it by going at it obliquely. So I think that's you know. But it's just it's just work, you know, it's just work and learning to work. And I think I have, I mean, I'm so pleased that you like the record and you think it's an improvement. I think one of the other is I've got better at working. I've got better at listening to people, people's feedback while we do it. I mean, you know, like, so time on earth, I think we start, I think we maybe start with 14 or 15 or 16 songs. So, you know, we dumped quite a lot that we dumped along the way, a couple that we finished, which we didn't put on the record. Some of the songs started one way, I mean, Six Four Rock Boys was an absolute full-on um, Northern Soul stomper at one point. It completely changed. So, I mean, and that's something that I've, you know, it's like as you, it's just a skill that you get the more you make music. You can, you can, you can kind of hold on to something. I think probably when I was younger, if you'd done that, it just would have collapsed under its own weight. I wouldn't have been skillful enough to do that to the song without it just going. <laughs> it's just like it's broken apart. We're done. Whereas you know now you can do that to something and I think you can pull it off plus the people I play with I mean the other thing is we did a lot of work on this record but almost I think almost every single sound on it is a first or a second take mm. so I mean the other because I'm lucky enough to play with the most amazing musicians do you know what I mean it's like you know I mean the I think the bass on English weather was the second thing that went on we initially just had the drum machine and my voice and the guitar and we gave it to Andy because he couldn't come in that day. And he played the whole bass line from one end to the other with nothing else. He had no idea there were going to be any strings. He had no idea there was going to be any and before the drums. And there's no drums when he played the bass. And there's not a single note on the bass line in that song that's changed. He just sent us a, you know, he sent us a nice stereo wav of the bass line. And we put it on the record because he wasn't around. But, and, you know, and it's that, that's, that's, I'm lucky enough to play with people like that. That also kind of, um, you know, honors the Kerouacian idea of capturing the ecstatic uh, moment when it happens. It's it's right. It's more it's raw and alive in because you do 25 takes. It sort of bleeds the life out of it a little bit. 
because we never do that. We never, ever do that. I mean, that's something that I'm so lucky that I've learned that now. It's like, you know, you might do a different song. <laughs> you know, you might, you might, I mean, you know, I've learned to make big decisions on stuff. Um, but I think, I mean, it, interesting, I've got a friend uh, who I teach with who, who wrote a paper on creativity where he did an actual sort of, you know what the word is sort of close observation of like two groups of people they were both given an advertising brief for a piece of music for an advert a, a real advert that actually got got commissioned and he knew the people that made the advert and got the commission for it and then he gave the same brief to some students and, and basically sort of quantified how many hours they spent on developing the idea changing the idea da, 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 da. and what emerged from the research more clearly than anything was that the pros would have lots and lots of different ideas which they would abandon and move forward and get rid of and dump and change quickly. The students would come up with maybe one or two idea and keep doing that idea and finessing that idea through the whole time they did the project, which is maybe you know, a limited time. And that was it in a nutshell. And I think what you learn maybe is to be much, you know, there was time we did songs where we, oh, let's try it like this, let's try it like this, let's try it like this. Actually, fuck it, let's not do it at all. Do you know what I mean? Or, you know that that's that's something that's something that you learn creatively in process terms and again i'm lucky enough to play with people that you know they can it's like it's like your it's like your uh it's like your skateboarding or sledding or something is it you don't fall off you know you know and i know that sean sean at the desk is not going to fall off doing it and can do everything you know and if we're like we need to do this take quickly he knows we need to do it quickly you know, when he comes up with a really good line, we all know well enough. I mean, the time on Earth line that he played on the on the piano is so cool. The little keyboard line at the beginning, and we were just doing a vocal take on it. That's a that weird melody, and it was like we were both like, "That's fucking good. That's good. Let's do fuck fuck doing the fuck doing the lead vocal. Let's do that now. Let's do that." And then he did it, and he and he did it in pieces, really, really quickly. And of course, there was, you know, it was lovely to watch him when we were doing Mark Riley because he hadn't played with us. So we're live on the radio. And Sean, who'd literally just done the Commonwealth Games three three nights before with Dexies, he'd been he'd been doing live for the Commonwealth Games. He was shitting himself because he thought, I've never played this keyboard line in one go. I played it once last December. That's it. And I never played the whole thing. So, you know, we're desperately trying, of course, being us, we didn't rehearse, you know, it's like we just kind of went into the session we had now to get ready. But, and that's lovely, but that's the speed you can work now, which is a pleasure. And it's, you know, when we do the session, it's not, you know, it's not a mess. It's fine. It sounds really like we've been rehearsing for ages and we rehearse not at all. You know, it's like, that's what you can do. That's the pleasure. Yeah, yeah I think age also gives you an economy where you kind of also we were talking about this at the beginning where it was sort of like your, your realization of time, what's working, what's not working. You make better decisions and faster decisions than you yeah, would yeah. if you were 25. Completely, completely. But then the paradox is you are also amazing when you're 25 in a way that you kind of aren't when you're older. There's, there's a certain, there's a certain drivenness that 25 year olds have, which is extraordinary. And I mean, you, you come against all the classic brilliant cliche of like, you know, youth is wasted on the young, but it's so, it, it's just extraordinary. The kind of level of, I mean, I, I've I, another little, another little theory that I enjoy is, you know, the reason that young people don't do the washing up 
is because they've got better things to do, isn't it? We do the washing up because we're responsible adults now. So we're like, it would just be really cunty if we didn't do the washing up. It'd be really rude. But obviously when you're young, you're like, you know that it would be really cunty and it's not quite right to do it. But at the same time, there's other stuff which is way more important than that, which just gets in the way. So that direction, you know, and it's like, yeah, that 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 that's complicated, that difference. But yeah, you get you get a kind of a, I mean, who was I reading someone the other day and saying how happy they were? I think some person I was reading. There was, you, know, you do get happier as you get older, I think. I mean, life gets gets nicer in a way, which is, I mean, it has its struggles, but I'm enormously lucky that I feel happier than I've ever felt, I think. I, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I've, I've, and that feels really good, you know. Yeah, I, I love hearing that because I, I think my my only goal for myself as as someone who's getting older is just keep getting smarter, keep getting better at the art that you do, right? Keep keep pressing yourself to become a nicer, happier, more productive version of yourself, and you're good to go. That's all you need to do. It has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with anything other than those those elements. Yeah, and that's right. And it's also really important not to get um angry i mean obviously oh, some of you i mean yeah, anger is certainly like, but there's a certain kind of really dangerous anger that comes to people when they're older i mean i guess it's called bitterness do you know what i mean so you kind of it's just that's really important and that's something that kind of it can it can invade very subtly as well but that's that's really important because it's like you know really recognizing that the one thing that's absolutely certain is change it will change it will always change and, you know, it's like, don't even think about saying, I mean, I have this, we were talking about you said not mentioning names. I've got a few contemporaries who I sometimes have to hear them say that music's not as good as it used to be, you know? And I'm just like, I can't believe I'm hearing this. I cannot believe that you are saying this or that something's not as good as it was, or, you know, songs aren't as good as they were, or the hit parade's not as good as it was. You know, I'm like, that I, I find that very I just feel sorry for them but it's, it's awful do you know what I mean that the idea that things aren't you know and again I think I'm very lucky in sort of you know working with 20 year olds I get that you know I get that they get, get to look in on that you know which is which is amazing so yeah so I think that's quite important I totally agree like to be that all the things you're saying that's exactly what I think but you you, you have to be very careful because you you can end up a lot of people do get older and they end up kind of quite arrogant and quite sort of drunk on their anger and their arrogance. And they're surprisingly sure about everything. I think remaining quite unsure, remaining quite uncertain that you're right about everything is very important. I agree with you. And also people who get older who don't want to take in new stuff and they just want to kind yeah. of hang on to their own old you know, raft of things that they liked. Um, without enriching it with the new stuff is a big mistake, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, also, but also making the mistake f leading from that, once they're on the raft, deciding that all the other rafts are rubbish, which is not right. true. Either. That's the way of justifying. It's like, I mean, if you want to be listen to the old stuff, that's fine, but don't for a minute think that it's better just because that's what you listen to or, or right. look at or read. You know, it's just that that's it's just what you like. You know, I mean, I think I think that's also something that was an enormous. Um, learning curve for me when I started teaching 15 20 years ago was the sort of sociological approach to music which really I'd had no idea I just, I just started teaching at Tom Wright and at Goldsmiths and I was like there is a canon and this is the canon 
and, and then not, having no idea that that was a cultural construction it never even occurred to me you know I was just like there's good stuff and there's bad stuff and I'm here to tell you what's good and you're here you know, and it's like oh Pete oh Pete that's so but that's something that some people of my generation still don't really get that they don't realize get they're in their cultural bubble and I'll, I'll you know i'll defend my cultural bubble with my life my aesthetics i mean I, you believe in that like you believe in a, in, a, in a higher power but i realize it's my culture and that's why i think it's so important it's not you know all that sort of cultural writing and understanding is, is such i mean obviously the classic as we would know is is uh is let's talk about love isn't it you know our close relationship it's, it's this phenomenal book of that and it completely nails that cultural idea um so I've, i feel very grateful for that that i can see it gives you almost like a taoist sense of acceptance of stuff of like no matter how important i think something is or somebody thinks something i might have done might might be it it's just that it's just that communication and that's lovely but it's not it's not, um, I don't know what the word is, it's not, it's not, it's not permanent, it's not, that's not the right word, it's not, it's not inherent, it's not inherent, there's nothing inherent about the quality of Bob Dylan, it's just all the people of our age have kind of decided he's pretty good, you know, right. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean, it's like, it's, 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 that's not, I mean, you know, yes, he's probably pretty good, but that's what they said about Shakespeare, look what happened to him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we a lot of Shakespeare scholars right now are, are turned this podcast off. <laughs> yeah, that's like, <laughs> I mean, I think that's why it's also really important to remember. You know, I remember talked to a friend of my company. Yeah, it was an artist who did a song. I did a bit of an illustration on songbooks. A guy who writes for his art magazine, Freeze, and he was going. And I was saying, please tell me the names of some artists, some Victorian artists that were really big. And now nobody gives a shot. I remember, you know, he was able to say, yeah, no, he totally got into the subject because that's it. There are people who were like, you know, who were like Dylan sized, um, who now nobody cares about, you know. So it's like it's not a given. Right. Like all those people that were that were sort of upstaged by that sort of big monolithic idea of Shakespeare or. Yeah, no, completely. It's like, you know, I'm, I, I started rereading Emily Dickinson again. And, and amazing. And then you're like, you know. There are so many contemporary poets of hers who are terribly, terribly important, are utterly forgotten. And obviously the woman that writes something that is practically never published is the one that everyone remembers, you know. Right, right, She's right. Superstar. You know, there would have been people that were just ludicrously successful who nobody even remembers their names, let alone reads them. And they would have sold, they would have been rock stars at the time, you know. But somebody made that decision that that Dickinson is going to be the one that we focus on for the next 400 years. Yeah, I mean, also the quality of what she did was just incredibly modern. I mean, it just really just, you know, she was ahead of her time, which, of course, is yeah. one of the reasons why it didn't connect, because people just didn't get it. Because they're like, what the fuck? What the fuck is this? Do you know what I mean? It just didn't. It was too, too far ahead of its time. It wasn't in its cultural moment, you know. I love Dickinson. I, I I love her. I've also been reading uh, Plath lately, which is not very cheery, but it's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think rereading. Well, funnily enough, I had a friend. I was I was playing up in Nottingham, a really old friend. And he he said, um, "What he was like? We were playing the gig, and he was uh, he went, look, I've got a book for you. I've got a present for you.'" And he went, "And so you know, somebody gives you something. You're on tour, and I was on tour on the on the um, on the train, and you know, when somebody gives you a brick like this, I was like, oh, <laughs> thanks.' <laughs> I was like, Ted Hughes.'" 
I don't want to read the biography of Ted Hughes. So what I did was, you know, I talked about reading fast. You know, I'm yeah. straight into Plath. I'm straight into the Plath bits and the Asiel Weevil bits, obviously, you know, straight in there. And it's actually, yeah. you know, so I, I read it tactically, of course, you know, and it was a brilliant read on the train, actually, on the train back. You know, I managed to nail all the important bits of this book um, in the, with the terribly important Ted Hughes that isn't really very important anymore, apart from his wife. Um, and it's like... <laughs> Yeah, amazing, amazing, amazing. Her writing, yeah, absolutely. And again, I've yeah, it, it, it's it's obvious, but it's fantastic, isn't it? It's so good, her writing, so, so good. good, yeah, so good, so, yeah. so good. And even like the Bell Jar is a sort of spellbinding novel. It's just yeah, yeah, completely. And just, but also seeing her sort of rising and rising and rising. And obviously, he intuited at the end of his life, Ted Hughes, and it's like ah, oh shit, game over. <laughs> I think I think he knew it even from day one. I mean, to his credit, I mean, obviously there was lots of things that he did which are very bad. But to his credit, I think he knew right off the, off the bat, shit, she's she's better than me. But it's very interesting that you know apparently his, I didn't realize I'm, I'm actually dipping into the end of it. That the birthday letters he he basically regretted everything he wrote after she died, because he was like, I'm not writing stuff from the heart, because I'm too scared of writing about her dying. Mm. And then right at the end of his life, he, well, he'd written the birthday letters, poems all through his life, but he finally published them because he was like, why the fuck wasn't I doing this in 1964? Why the fuck wasn't I? But he, he, I think he basically said, this, that's why I did all this stuff about crows and everything. It's because I didn't have the bollocks to write about my heart, which is a brilliantly kind of, you know, simple, it's true, back, back to that very truthful thing of, you know, just write, writing all those cliches, like writing from the heart. But um yeah, amazing, amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the well, other, the also other... sort of a game-saving uh, realization at the end of one's life. Yeah, no, exactly. I think it's it, but it's it's interesting that at the end of his life, and I'm, I'm sort of just dipping into. It, I need to get more. I'm looking forward to reading. That he really was, by the sounds of things, very, very. Oh shit! I've got it wrong. I may be poet laureate. I may be like a big fucking cheese, but actually, I've got it wrong, which is quite a thing, isn't it? It's quite a thing to be that kind of like you got it that wrong. But uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a real twist on the sort of like the end of your life regretting something, or end of your life realizing that you you got it all wrong, which is like worse than regret. You're like just that's wrong. It's an awful thought, isn't it? Yeah, you just you just. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, I think, but I think that's that's something that I think that's also maybe a prerequisite of everybody that gets older. You have to get over the fact that you did get it all wrong. Yeah. And you just have to get over that fact because you, you know, you you have got it all wrong. I mean, I know yeah. I've got it all wrong. I rest assured. You know, I know that for sure. I just have to kind of try and come to terms with it. <laughs> true. Well, Pete, we made it past 37 minutes. So I think I think we did okay. Oh, pleasure. No, it's a <laughs> top pleasure. Real lovely chat. Lovely chat. Such a great chat. That was Pete Astor. Hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. I will be bringing him back because that guy, man, he's fun to talk to. Uh, also fun to listen to. 
His new album is Time on Earth. Pick it up, PeteAstor.com, P-E-T-E-A-S-T-O-R.com. Go there, buy his music, support him. He's worth it. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. You can follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor or on Instagram at Embers Podcast or email me editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Don't forget to check out BombshellRadio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick. And a reminder that Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate and review, review and rate. Rate and review again, and review and rate one more time. Let's just see what happens. And tell every single person you know about our podcast. We'd certainly appreciate it. Let's close the show with a longer listen to the title track from Pete Astor's new album, Time on Earth. Enjoy it. And thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. Dressed up in future fashion Spending time outside the station Superpowers in your fingertips Guarding special information You came from Kenya via Saturn Never asking for permission Standing there every single day Quiet about your mission Your legacy is neon bones Press cuttings and black and white photos And no one even knew your name You were just spending time on earth again Jesus on holiday You left behind your brand new family No one ever saw you again You disappeared in the dead of winter No whisper of an explanation They kept your seat at the bar Ready for your reincarnation your legacy is neon bones Breast cuttings and black and white photos And no one even knew your name You were just spending time on earth Spending time on a
you're just spending time on earth again.